Welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. The Four Noble Truths was the first teaching given by the Buddha. In it, he describes the truth of suffering, the end of suffering, and the path out of suffering. Jetsama Akon Lamo shows us that applying these teachings in our lives will bring good results and increase our happiness. The one thing that all sentient beings have in common, or I should say one of the main things that all sentient beings have in common, but particularly the one thing that makes us all related, interrelated, kind of like brothers and sisters under the skin, is that we all in our own fashion wish to be happy. And if you examine the content of your life and what you've done and not done up until this point, you'll find that just about everything that you've engaged in up until this point has been, in some regard, an attempt at being happy. That attempt at happiness, unfortunately, is only sometimes successful, and sometimes it's extremely misguided. Actually, we might have some better idea as to what happiness is all about than someone who habitually is harmful toward others, who has a strong habit of harmfulness toward others, or perhaps extreme selfishness. Even someone like uh, a person who is a, chronically a criminal, perhaps someone who is a, a thief or even a murderer, even a good example might be the recent uh, capture of a man who was a serial uh, murderer. Believe it or not, even such an extreme condition like that is a misguided attempt to be happy. Of course, it's extremely misguided. And that's the one thing that we might have in common with such a one as that, is that we are both trying to be happy. That's really hard to understand, though, isn't it? Because we can't think how it would be possible to be happy by really harming others in such a a bizarre and, and brutal way as that man apparently did. We can't understand what his what would he be thinking of? How could he think like that? How could he think that being harmful and hateful toward others could possibly bring happiness. Of course, it's hard to say because we don't have the man here, we can't examine his mind, and we can't really assume that uh, we would know what he was thinking, but we could take at least a theoretical guess, a theoretical leap at understanding. Possibly in this man's mind, the control or power that he achieved over others through that kind of brutality uh, he thought would make him happy. The feeling of controlling others, the feeling of supremacy, the feeling of, of the, the ability to dictate the conditions of some other person's life. Possibly in some twisted way, he thought that that would make him feel 
happier. Perhaps he didn't even use the word happy. Perhaps he felt an exhilaration of power. Perhaps he felt an excitement about the continuation or uh, fulfillment of some crazy compulsion. It's really hard for us to understand because we don't act like that. But we do, throughout the course of our lives, demonstrate certain activities that we ourselves don't understand. Sometimes we'll watch ourselves act completely out of character. Or even if we are within character, and that means predictable, we'll watch ourselves move through certain cyclic changes within our lives in which we predictably act the same, but that it predictably brings no good result. An example of that might be uh, something like a story that I've heard here more than once with students that will come to me for consultation or, or just to, to talk to me for a while. And they'll say, well, I don't know what to do about my tendencies in perhaps relationships. In relationships, it seems that I act a certain habitual way. It seems that I um, uh, become attracted to uh, people of the opposite sex that are not appropriate for me, that they are not compatible with me, and that under those circumstances, I generally, for a period of time, feel a great attraction and then ultimately become very unhappy. Or perhaps in a relationship, I cannot assert myself. I habitually act like an underdog or an underling. And I cannot achieve any real happiness in relationships. Or perhaps in relationships, I habitually come on strong in the beginning and then after a while I turn off and feel very much out of touch with the, the, the meaning of the relationship. Whatever it is, I've had many students, many times during the course of my uh, speaking with students, students will come to me and they'll say, I don't understand this habitual tendency that I have. I don't understand how it is that I continually engage in the same patterns. We all understand patterns. We all have patterns within our lives. And we don't understand why it is we often do perpetuate patterns that bring us unhappiness. Patterns that have never worked out before, and why should they this time? But they bring us continually some disappointment. Why is it that we do that? Perhaps we think that maybe we don't really want to be happy. I don't think that that's the case. According to the Buddha's teaching, everyone wishes to be happy. Across the board, everyone wishes to be happy. But we all have these inner messages that we're playing to ourselves, like perhaps we think we'll be the happiest if we're unhappy, because we deserve to be unhappy in some strange way. Or perhaps we think that we'll be the happiest if we can act unhappy so that others will comfort us, and that's really what we want. Or perhaps we feel that if we act misguided enough, eventually someone will come forth with the answer for us. We have all kinds of hidden inner agendas that we play over and over again. But we should never mistake that the one thing we all have in common no matter what our condition is, and no matter what our habits are, is that we do wish to be happy, and we wish it deeply, we wish it very much. What is the problem? Why is it that we cannot really find happiness on any permanent basis? <clears throat> well, there are many different reasons for that, and one of those reasons is that, as Lord Buddha teaches, nothing in the life of a sentient being is permanent. 
Literally, the life of a sentient being is like a waterfall rushing down a mountain. The scenario always changes, the scene always changes. And the life itself is rushing very quickly, begun and then over. Life is impermanent. Everything about our lives are impermanent, even the cornerstones of our lives, the things that we pin our hopes on, such as family, such as relationships, and such as possessions, even possessions that seem very solid, like a car. A car is very hard. You can come and hit your car just like that, and it's very solid. And we might think that our car is, this car is going to be the one that makes me happy. But as you know, as soon as you begin to pay that car off, three or four years into ownership, that car is going to begin to abandon you. And that is always the case. And it's the same with relationships. Relationships change. And the same relationship, no matter how wonderful and fulfilling it can be, is completely dependent on our own receptivity and our own moods. And they change constantly. The interactions between people are constantly being modified by many different things, including cause and effect relationships that we ourselves instigate. Everything in, in life is like, is like a moving, dynamic tapestry, always weaving and interweaving, constantly interdependently arising cause and effect relationships. Everything is moving and impermanent in our lives. Therefore, it's so hard to find a core of stability, so difficult to find any kind of lasting permanent happiness. And yet, still, we hunger for happiness. And we still engage constantly in activities that we think will bring us happiness. How can it be that we've had so little result? Well, it isn't true that we've had no result. We have had temporary happiness. We've all had that. Probably we feel pretty good right now. Probably we felt all right when we got up this morning. But we feel differently every day, and really every moment. And sometimes we are even afraid to, to think that we're really happy, because we know that right behind that happiness, right behind that, is another mood change, and we know that it's not lasting. How can we have managed to continue in such an effortful way how is it that, that we maintain this extreme effortfulness? And what, what's the answer? What should we do? First of all, we have to begin to cultivate some understanding. According to the Buddha's teaching, every condition that we experience in our lives, including the most subtle inner conditions, that is to say, our own impressions and feelings and, and subtle inner posturing, that very, very subtle stuff that seems so wispy, seems to change all the time with every catalyst that appears in our lives. From that kind of subtle condition to the most seemingly permanent, gross, outer condition, such as the house we live in, the nation that we live in, the community that we live in, the, the world that we live in. The Buddha teaches us that every one of those conditions that we experience actually arises through the interdependence of cause and effect relationships. Every condition, with no exception. Even the condition of how you appear, how you appear physically. 
Now, of course, you have some control in that matter. You can diet and become thin. You can put on makeup and become better looking. You can take off makeup and become either better or worse looking, depending on how well you apply makeup. You can gain weight. You can do uh, different kinds of juggling in order to make yourself appear more attractive through wearing different clothing or what have you. But there are some things about which it seems that we have no control. For instance, the genetic tendency of our body to, to be in a certain way. Some people are shorter than others, some are taller. Some have a tendency towards uh, a more um, a squat body form and others have a tendency towards a very lanky body form. These things seem to be beyond our control and we can look at our parents and our grandparents and it seems as though we have the same genetic structure as them and it seems as though we have not, not much control over that. But according to the Buddha, even such things as that that appear to be handed to us from the time of our birth, even such things as genetic predisposition, these are the result of karma. The Buddha teaches us that the house that we live in, what are the conditions of our living? Do we live in a beautiful house? Do we live in a, a, a happy and harmonious family situation? Um, do we own property? Are we impoverished? Um, what are the conditions of our lives? Some of them, it seems, once again, we have control over. There are many books out now that tell us we can become millionaires and millionairesses through a certain amount of effort if you follow this very simple 10-point program starting with the investment of a few thousand dollars. We can all become millionaires. And uh, for some people, I'm sure that kind of program has worked. And yet, there are some conditions in our lives that are seemingly unbeatable. For instance, what if personality-wise we don't seem to have that certain mindset that permits us to engage in that kind of activity? And then what again, what if we don't want to? Some people feel chronically defeated and have always felt so and they never take uh, aggressive moves toward gaining whatever it is that they want. But other people seem to have to do nothing and happiness comes to them or, or prosperity comes to them. There are so many conditions in our lives that seem controllable and, other, and they're mixed in with conditions that seem uncontrollable. How are we to understand that? Well, the Buddha teaches us that we have, at best, a very partial, very minimal understanding of cause and effect relationships. It's actually quite minimal. And the reason why is that there is very little cause and effect unfolding that we can actually see. If we live to be a hundred years old, then relative to how much uh, experience we have actually had as sentient beings, which the Buddha indicates is quite extensive. The Buddha tells us that we've lived many more than one lifetime. We have, therefore, if we've lived to a hundred years already, only one tiny, tiny window of time in which to judge our experience. But that window of time actually has a very exacting beginning and a very exacting ending. And it's very difficult to understand what has come before, what will come after. 
there are certain elements that we can view within that window of time and we can understand, we can gain some understanding. It has been my experience that usually that, that people while they, as they mature and as they become older, have gained enough life experience not to make certain kinds of mistakes again and again and again. Now, in some cases I think it may be that we're just too tired and old to make those mistakes again and again and again. But in other cases I think there is a true learning that has actually occurred and I'm really not sure what the proportions are. But there are some cause and effect relationships that we become acquainted with, especially if, as most of you, I'm sure all of you, you are engaged in watchfulness in your life and really wanting to progress spiritually in some way. Uh, your capacity for learning is that much greater. We may learn that if we're really kind and loving to others, we get better result. We may learn that if we're generous, people are generous to us. We may learn that if we're really hateful and arrogant, we never really get anything good out of that. We may learn some lessons like that, and if that's the case, that's a very precious and valuable lesson to Those are our precious and valuable lessons to learn. However, there are lots of things that we don't learn. The reason why is that, for one thing, we really don't fully understand how it is that we came into this life under the conditions that we have. We don't understand how it was that we were born to the families that we were born to, or how it was that we arrived in the condition that we arrived in, how, how it is that we arrived in our genetic structure, how it is that we arrived with certain propensity uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, certain habitual tendencies. Why is it that they have arisen so strongly within us and it seems as though other people, even in the same family, do not have the same habitual tendencies. We don't have a full and complete understanding. And the reason why is because we cannot really understand the conditions that have occurred previous to this lifetime. We don't have an, have an understanding of that. We cannot actually view the cause and effect relationships that brought us to this present state. And another thing is that we don't often understand the outcome of causes that we ourselves have begun during the course, course of this lifetime. For instance, we may be able to see very simple kind of cause and effect realities, like if you walk up and punch somebody in the, in the nose that's approximately the same size as you, there's a real good chance he or she is going to punch back. And you might learn some cause and effect reality by trying that. But on the other hand, you might not learn that if you sit there and instead of punching the person who is not your favorite person, instead you sit there in your mind and think hateful thoughts, thoughts of wishing to do harm, thoughts of, 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 of condemnation and judgment. You may think that having those thoughts, just because you haven't said them, just because you haven't acted on them, just because you haven't punched, is somehow okay that having those thoughts is secret, that no one knows about them, and that it's really all right to think like that. Because you won't see it play itself out. And even if it does play itself out during the course of that lifetime, perhaps the person that you have these thoughts toward is in the future, maybe even just a couple of weeks from that time, 
strongly hateful toward you. You may not understand the connection. You may not see what has happened. Certainly you will not see if that cause and effect relationship ripens in some future life because you won't remember that you just got what you deserved. You won't remember that you had the same thoughts about that person. So we don't have any real way to understand direct cause and effect relationships. And it is for that reason that we cannot really seem to understand how to create the causes of happiness. A good example of that is this. If we experience for perhaps chronic poverty, we may think that the way to, to end this chronic poverty is to struggle against it, to work very hard at getting money any way that you can, to beg, borrow, or steal, literally, to work very hard at a very high-paying job in order to get money. What we won't understand is that probably whatever we do within that realm of activity will have temporary result at best. It may work for a period of time. Then again, it may not. I know people that work hard and can't seem to get anywhere. Or it may be that it works very well for a certain period of time, but even while it works very well and you have money, the consciousness is such that you still feel impoverished. You can't enjoy it, can't get anywhere with it, can't use it for any good result. It simply sits. And to all intents and purposes, you are still impoverished. It's very difficult to understand how it is that these cause and effect relationships play themselves out. Now, according to the Buddhist teaching, if you have a great deal of affluence at this time, if that is easy for you, then what has actually occurred is that in the past you have accumulated a great deal of merit through generosity. Through generosity, through giving to others. And that is why in this lifetime it is easy for you to accumulate money or easy for you to enjoy money or easy for you to feel wealthy even if you don't have much money. It is easy for you to feel that you have plenty, enough, that you're just fine. Either inwardly or outwardly, you are prosperous. This is a hard lesson to take in because we want to feel that this personality in this lifetime was responsible for doing something in a very competent way in order to achieve these excellent results. But according to the Buddha, in many cases, prosperity is the result of generosity. In fact, in all cases, prosperity is the result of generosity. And a person who is chronically impoverished is a person who has not been generous and continues to not be generous with their resources, with their time, and in their hearts. The Buddha teaches us that the antidote to poverty is not getting money any way you can but that the antidote to poverty is kindness and generosity and putting out in order to benefit others. Actually, these are the teachings and lessons that we are trying to implement here in this temple. One of the goals that I have personally invested a great deal in is to try to create in this temple an opportunity for sentient beings to invest 
their effort, their kindness, uh, their resources in whatever way uh, in order to bring benefit to others. I feel that this is a beneficial practice. According to the Buddha's teachings, this is one way to create the perfect interdependent cause and effect arising in order to create the kind of happiness that we wish. The efforts that we engage in here have to do, actually I should say the efforts that we engage in here don't seem to bring much result at this time, in this way. Right now, for instance, we are holding a 24-hour-a-day prayer vigil. There's always someone in that room behind the staircase, the shrine room, who is praying for the welfare of sentient beings. We actually take two-hour shifts and we go round the clock 24 hours a day. Now what is that producing for us now? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We lose sleep, we get irritable, we're tired. Sometimes we don't want to get up and do this thing. Sometimes we do everything that we can to trade shifts so that we don't have to be there on Saturday morning. But somebody gets stuck with it, I guarantee you. Where's the payoff? Why would we want to do that? Let's talk about some of the other things that we do. Right now we're building a stupa park with eight stupas in it. In the past we built the stupa that is out on the grounds toward the parking lot. When we built that stupa out there, we had weather such as we've had in the last couple of days. For some reason, every time we build stupas, this happens. I don't know why. But it seems to be in the high 90s, if not 100 or over, with humidity just under pouring, you know, somewhere around 99.9. And uh, it's just beastly weather, and it's very difficult. And we get out there, and we work very hard, and we sweat very much. And it seems as though the effort will never end, and it's very, very hard because we do everything ourselves. And sometimes we lose weekends for a whole summer. Sometimes we lose evenings for months. We don't get much rest. We work very, very hard. Why do we do this? What's the benefit? What are we experiencing right now in building this stupa park that's so wonderful? Besides backaches and sore limbs. And it seems as though nothing. It seems as though we're just working very hard for no good reason. But actually what we are doing here is we are implementing the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha teaches us that whatever we can do to benefit beings, to bring happiness and well-being to sentient beings, will bring us happiness and well-being as well. The Buddha teaches us that the point of our practice, the point of our lives, is to actually engage in meritorious, generous, wholesome, and virtuous activity that will be of benefit to sentient beings. And the Buddha teaches us specifically that the only lasting, permanent, true cessation of suffering and therefore benefit to sentient beings is enlightenment. The true cessation of suffering is the state of enlightenment. So that being the case, we implement these teachings by actually engaging in activities that will bring that enlightenment to others. 
if we build a temple, if we build stupas, if we build these objects of refuge that cause people to come and even bring one small offering, a flower, a scarf, that's a traditional offering for Tibetans, bowl of rice, some small offering, that connection will in some day in the future will someday in a future time ripen in such a way as to help them to be on the path of enlightenment sufficiently to be able to practice and thereby achieve enlightenment. It's a hook. It's a method and it will reap benefit in the future. I've seen it time and time again. There are uh, beings that come here that know nothing about enlightenment, care nothing about anything but today. Uh, they just come to visit because this place looks kind of exotic. I don't know what brings them, but it brings, because we look weird. I don't know, something. Maybe it's the flags. Drives some of us crazy, but some of us, it pulls us in. They come to this place and I'll go, what's the deal here? What is this place? And we'll explain to them that this is a temple for Buddhism and they'll get some view about this and they'll have a minimal understanding and they'll go, oh, this is all right. And then we'll say to them, well, this is great, but what you ought to do is you ought to go to the stupa and you ought to go around the stupa three times in a clockwise direction and make prayers both for your own well-being and for the welfare of others. And if you do that, absolutely. The teaching is that you'll have some benefit from that, that there will be some benefit from that. Well, see, most people are just a little superstitious. You know, we're a, we're a people that, remember when you were a kid, you wouldn't step on the crack because you might bring bad luck. You know, you wouldn't step on the crack in the sidewalk uh, because you might break your mother's back or some weird thing like that. Wasn't that the rhyme? Step on your crack and you break your mother's back? Well, nobody's mother probably has a broken back, so it must have worked. You avoided it. Um, we have a little superstition in all of us, and maybe they don't know anything about Buddhism, but they do go out to the stupa. I've seen it again and again and again. And they'll go, now what direction am I supposed to go in? And what am I supposed to be thinking about now? And they'll just sort of make their way around the stupa three times. And that's when I'm happy. Because I know that all the hard work that we put into that has just brought some benefit. That will act as a cause. That little, even superstitious faith, that little thing that they've just done, that act, and the prayer not only for their own happiness, but for the happiness of others. That prayer will reap fruit in the future, and it will bring them happiness. So that's why we do what we do. That's why we pray 24 hours a day, because we wish to create this constant stream of virtue and merit. And then we dedicate that constant stream of virtue and merit to the benefit of sentient beings. All of the virtue and merit that we've accumulated through building the stupas and all that, all that we will accumulate in the future through that, we're constantly dedicating to the welfare of sentient beings. We really want to change the world. How arrogant of us, isn't it? I don't think so, actually. We want to change our own cause and effect relationships within our minds. We want to change our own karma. We want to change the condition of this community. We want to raise up the condition of this community. We want, in this community, for generous activity to actually be occurring. We want to raise the condition of this nation. We want to raise the condition of this planet. We want to make a change. 
You see, in our view, up until this time, most of the activity that we have been engaged in was our own effort trying to make only ourselves happy. And that's really true. In this life and in our lives previous to this, there is constantly have, has been a kind of self-absorption, a kind of endless grasping at happiness. And it's the condition of most of the world. It's what most, most sentient beings are doing. They constantly are grasping at happiness. In this life, in this place, our effort is really based on trying to turn that around, to try to generate happiness and, like nectar, pour it out to others, to try to generate a constant stream of virtue and merit and feed sentient beings with that virtue and merit. We don't even care if they recognize. We don't care if they know what we're doing. We hope that they'll participate because that will help them. We hope that they'll you know, uh, offer themselves in some way, their resources or their persons in some way, because that will, ha that will benefit them. But there's no recognition necessary. It's just the constant generation of, of generous, virtuous activity. And we're not doing it really because we're such nice guys. We're doing it because we know it works and because it will turn things around and because it is really the only means by which we can begin to create happiness. It is the seed of happiness and it will bring about the fruit of happiness. Eventually it will bring our enlightenment and the enlightenment of all sentient beings and that is permanent happiness. There's really no other reason to engage in the life that we live. We have to make a lot of sacrifices, whether we are ordained people wearing robes or whether we are lay people. We make a lot of sacrifices, but we do so knowing that these, it doesn't make us any kind of special person. It only makes us a little bit more knowledgeable about how to create happiness. Happiness comes through generosity. It comes through virtue. It comes through kindness. It comes through doing what you can to benefit others. It comes through making offerings. It comes through contemplation, through meditation, and through prayer. These are the causes of happiness, and we are engaging them then. So what's the upshot? What about all of the people that are working really hard to do this? Well, we actually have some members of our Sangha that when they first came to me, well, uh, one person was considering suicide. One person was chronically depressed. There are many people throughout the course of their lives that they felt had no chance for happiness and they came to this place as a last resort and through acts of generosity have turned that around. Among us there really isn't an unhappy person. There really isn't a person who's chronically depressed or anywhere near suicide. And in our society these things are considered normal. It is considered so frequently found as to be a common occurrence. So please understand that you do have the power to create within your life the causes that bring about the effects of happiness. But you need some guidance on them. It isn't like you think. You'll never get it by grasping. But you may get it through loving. If it doesn't ripen in this lifetime, it will ripen in the future, but certainly you will experience happiness. 
please do consider these teachings and please take them home and use them in some way. Um, the thing about these teachings is that if you actually use them, they are of some benefit. But if you don't use them, they are, serve you no, no good at all. They do you no good at all. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.